Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, aren't you glad you're at church this morning? Before AJ walks off here, you know, this last uh, month we always have a great time bringing in uh, special musicians and uh, folks to help uh, not only our team be excited about the kickoff, but for you to get excited. Um, But there's an amazing thing that happens in October when those musicians go home. We, We still have a special musician leading us week after week. Don't you feel that way? In fact, if you understood how much organization it takes to bring in other people, uh, and yet uh, what AJ may not understand is how much you appreciate his voice week after week and leading us before the Lord. Aren't you thankful for him? So you're a blessing, brother. So thankful for AJ and his team. Uh, This morning, we are going to be introducing you to two new things. Actually, a new series and a new person, all right? So we will start with the person. Um, and uh, this is how I'd like to, to uh, kind of lay the groundwork. Uh, a short while ago, some of you uh, that have been here for more than six months uh, are aware that uh, we've been growing and we have laid out in front of uh, our church some vision statements, some things that we believe uh, as a leadership team that God has called us to move towards. Um, First, we have a a deep desire that our church would be what's known as a 100-year church. When you look at the Moravian Brethren, uh, for 100 years, they had an active place where they were praying, they were teaching uh, the truth about the word of God. They were discipling, but they were also evangelizing. 50% of their people mobilized to be out into the field. And for 100 years, that little church of 350 sending out almost 350 missionaries at a continual pace, they impacted the world. Every major mission organization at some point refers to that location, the Moravian Brethren, uh, as one of their Um, the reason that they were inspired to do what they do. And yet, if I were to ask this auditorium, who were the great leaders among the Moravian brethren, you would not be able to name more than one. You might know a name called Count Zinzendorf. Some of you think he was actually on Harry Potter. (laughs) Here's the thing. It's not about the leaders, it's about the Lord. Right? We want to be a hundred year church that keeps Jesus at the center and not a man or his platform front and center. And the only way that happens is if Jesus stays the main thing and if the Word of God stays central. But the other thing is we wanted to be a church that gave gifts to the city. That when the rapture happens, they will miss us. People filling up those spaces where grace is needed and where help is needed and where thoughtfulness is needed. We want to be a church that does that. And what became evident to us as a leadership team and to all of our other leaders is that we're going to need more help and people with skill sets differently than the leaders God's already given you. 
those that go along the line of organization, all right? Not found anywhere near this part of the stage. One of the key answers to prayer, and I think it's a supernatural one, was found in an individual that's been a good friend of mine for a long time, but now he is on our staff by the name of Steve Dangaren. So Steve, will you please come up here and join me on the stage? Now, with that, there should be a Shekinah glory when you come up here, but the white, just stand over here in the light. Look at the whiteness of that shirt. Yeah, already glows more than me. Uh, Here's a a couple of things that I would like for you to do for us, Steve, this morning so we can get to know you. And and we talked about this. We can't cover all of the weeds, but we can hit the high points of what really has been a fun story to unpack between you and I. Um, But let's start with just a quick bio. How long have you been in ministry? What's your family of origin? Uh, Are they believers? How did you get called into ministry and how did you land here? Well, first of all, good to be with you. Salem Heights Church, the hundred-year church. I got about 60 years to go on that. That's awesome. So my family, Janet, my wife, is sitting right over there. We met while attending college in the deep south, San Diego State University. <coughs> Married for 40 years. Wait, pause there. That's worthy of... Uh... You, you might yeah. say, uh, when you meet Janet, you'll probably say she's barely 40 herself. How is that possible? But, uh, yeah, we met a, a while back and three kids, uh, two great, great grand uh, daughters-in-law and five grandkids. So our, our lives are full. But to, to my story of, of calling, I, I got to tell you a little bit about this. So uh, rewind clock to my first year in college. Yeah. And I'm sitting in the college library, which was an anomaly itself, and, and a, a, a guy sat down across from me who I hadn't met before. And we began dialoguing, and in short order, I discovered, um, man, this guy is hurting. He's, there's some stuff going on. I probed a little bit and just uh, discovered in a few seconds, really, that, that he'd made some bad decisions and his life was in a mess. All I could think of to do, having been raised in a Christian home, was to invite him to church on Sunday. He said yes. So here we are sitting in church, something like this. And at the end of the service, I lean over and say, um, hey, how about we start reading the Gospel of John? Good barely, place to start. Yeah. A great place to start yeah. and barely one step ahead of him. And again, he says yes. And so by the end of the week, we've read through all 20 verses, all, all 20 chapters of, of the Gospel of John, uh, 21 chapters. And uh, all of a sudden, he starts bringing his friends. By the end of the term... There's now a group of guys that have given their lives to Jesus, and I'm discipling them. Again, barely one step ahead of them. So in that process, I graduated from college, graduated from seminary, and 10 years later, I find myself as a youth pastor. Does that story ring a bell? Yes. As a youth pastor in Long Beach, California, and and I find myself on on campuses inviting students Hmm. over and over to the same message. Jesus is Lord. The Word of God is the inspired, authoritative Word for you and me today. Why don't we follow Him? And so uh, I kind of came into ministry in the back door. Yeah. (laughs) But what a story. Yeah, life change, which is really one of the things that we're about. 
Um, but also, not just uh, leading people to Christ, that's been an exciting part of the journey, and discipleship, but you saw, as you look across uh, different churches and, and places, a need for organization. One of the things that we have going on in this next season, we have uh, space issues with our actual facility, and we also have uh, planning issues. How are we going to be able to um, organize as we grow? And it just so happens that the Lord had led you to go get training in those specific areas. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, about that? Give us also a, a, just a, where might your fingerprints be found that the Lord's used you in projects that would put that on display? Well, imagine you're sitting in your office one day and somebody on staff walks in and says, hey, Justin, I was just wondering if I could have an extended study leave and, uh, you know, not very long, just maybe three, four months a year for the next five years. You, you might be tempted to say, it's been a great run, and there's the door. And, yeah. Well, that's where I found myself uh, several years ago. I was on staff at Salem Alliance Church for 25 years here in, here in town. And that's where I found myself yes. sitting in front of the governing board asking for five years to pursue a, a, a graduate degree at Gonzaga University focusing on organizations and organizational innovation and productivity. And the degree, they said yes. Grade B miracle. They said yes. Grade B, yes. <laughs> and so I find myself in these five years of, of graduate study um, in the presence of, of executives and design engineers um, asking the question, how do you take an idea to a product to market? <clears throat> the fun thing is, Justin, I began to apply this to the church. So lo and behold around 2010, 20, maybe 2008, we began dreaming about a center on the corner of Broadway and High Streets, downtown, that could be a place where church, community, and commerce come together for the common good. So I find myself all of a sudden designing spaces and ministries and processes that would help launch the vision of seeing Salem become a, a city at, at peace with God. And then all of a sudden, we start dreaming about a ministry school, and I find myself as the academic dean of a, of a school called Reach Training Institute, or RTI, and now it's sending students all over the world. So once again, God surprises me with what he wants to do. Well, and that's a, a long ways when you think about the size of a project, and uh, I mean, just looking at it from a distance, people would say, oh, that's easy. You just throw up four walls and uh, put some people in there, and it's awesome, Right. Uh, but that hasn't been done well, I would say. I, I haven't seen that done as well anywhere else. And so, yeah, it, you're uh, being used by the Lord. But you just hit something very quickly that will probably uh, pique the ears of some folks. Because if we go back 10, 15, you may not even have to go back that far. But let's say 20, 25 years ago, you land here, I'm here but churches in the city were pretty siloed at that point. So we, uh, we agree with our people, but we don't mess much with anybody else in the community. We don't like to mix. And so I just want to lay this question out there, all right, for our audience. 25 years at Salem Alliance, major part of their ministry team. Fingerprints all over Broadway and RTI by God's grace, but allowed you to be a part of those projects. But now... You're at Salem Heights Church, dot, 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 ellipsis. Is there more to the story? Oh, man. 
What a great question. Well, this is, this is where our lives intersect. Yeah. So I, I got to just don't listen for a second. Okay. So in 2011, a good friend of ours introduces us. We met in the ministry house right up at the top of the property. His name was Reed Saunders. You got you to gotta meet. You, you have such a similar heart and passion for the, for the world and for the city. And I think we discovered pretty quickly that there were many things in common. Uh, a heart for God. Um, a, a passion for the Word of God. Did I say fly fishing? Um, uh, a commitment to seeing the gospel taken to the streets and to the nations. A commitment to pastors and churches. And so, 10 years ago, we find ourselves leading a group of pastors on Wednesdays, once a month at Broadway Commons, and inviting them into relationship and saying to them, it's going to take more than just two churches. It's going to take more than 10 churches. It's going to take more than every church we have to see all the people in Salem who don't know Jesus come into relationship with him. So let's join forces. And so for the last 10 years, Justin and I have uh, been serving alongside of, with, being prayed for, and coaching and mentoring a group of pastors that has, uh, it's really transformed us, wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't you say? There's no doubt. No doubt, yeah. And, and so, you know, f from those days, last summer, uh, don't listen to this part either. Yeah, okay. Last summer, I called up Justin and I said, hey, could we just take a walk? And so we took a lap or two around Minto Brown, and uh, I initiated this conversation and I said, I don't know what's going on, but I, I have a sense that God is releasing us from our current ministry. There's, there's nothing that's gone sideways. There's, it's just time. And is there room for me on your team? Probably a question I shouldn't be asking. And, and here it leads to a series of conversations and prayer times. Yeah. And lo and behold, we discover that, that God has united our hearts and, and united our vision. And it leads us to today. And uh, what a blast to be joining you and the team in ministry. It is really awesome. Um, and, and part of that story, the subtext to that as well, was when we first met, I told Steve, he's uh, getting out of his car and he's coming up to my office and he's from Salem Alliance. And I told him, I actually heard in my mind the imperial death march as he was coming in. <laughs> Am I even supposed to have this guy in my office? I mean, he's from Salem Alliance. I got a, so I laid out the gospel. <laughs> Turns out he was not only saved, but a brother. And uh, here's what I'd have you know. Uh, he's lock and step with us. Uh, he's gone out with blessing. He's being welcomed, I would say, with blessing. And we're praying that this next season, yes. That God would use you as you join us to help us uh, fulfill those things, to be a part of helping us organize, change. We got some changing to do, but also even uh, you could see in the way that he uh, shared those things, to be a part of the story, not just naming objectives. And so I'm so thankful for you. I'm excited that you're a part of our team. And oh, I told uh, the guys I would give you a title. Uh, right now, we would announce it. So this is new even to the elders. Um, <laughs> Welcome, Steve, our operations advisor and pastoral consultant. All right? Well, it's, it's long enough for sure. Yes. 
Steve, we love you. Yeah, so let me pray real quick. So, Father, we, uh, we just come before you right now. I thank you for Steve. I thank you for what you've done in his life. But also, Father, we do need uh, on our property help figuring out how to just organize and move forward so that we can do the very best job of discipling, evangelizing, of teaching our own folks. Uh, but also, Father, uh, we, we need to reinvestigate how we go about ministry so that we can stay connected one to another, so that we can be visible, faithful, uh, but still be in fellowship, not withdrawn. And I pray that uh, as Steve helps us with some of those systems, but also joins us in the work, that uh, you'd bless him. Uh, Father, that uh, you would help us as a church to continue uh, to push towards those things that you have called us toward, to. And Father, help us to be about your word, be shaped by what your spirit uh, leads us to do each moment. But Father, we pray that we would rejoice along the way in these great steps as you put things together. So we thank you for Steve and ask this morning you'd help him to feel welcome in our church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, brother. Yeah. All right, so I said two introductions this morning. The second one is going to be the book of Hebrews. We're starting this morning in the book of Hebrews. I know it's going to be a little bit of a hard right turn, uh, but this is week one, and we've broken the book of Hebrews up into three separate little series, and the first series uh, we're titling Incomparable. So this is the, the first a uh, message where we're lining out for you. What does the book of Hebrews have for you? And in particular, why should you pay attention to what the book of Hebrews has to say? Now, the easy answer, of course, uh, is, well, it talks about Jesus, and it does. But I think the emphasis inside the book of Hebrews, the thing that is really important for you and I to uh, wrap our minds around, is the place that it puts Christ a while ago, I'd, I'd shared a story with you under the uh, uh, idea that you steer where you stare, right? We learned that when you're on a bike, when you're a kid. And I was listening to a, a pastor describe his learning how to snowboard, and he couldn't figure out how to get the thing to go, the direction he wanted to go, until the instructor told him, you have to look where you want to go. And when you turn and look, your board is going to start to go that direction as you turn the other way. Uh, and you know, if you're a snowboarder, that's an oversimplification, but it is the essence of it. You steer where you stare. But also, if you are found staring at trouble, you're going to steer towards trouble. But in Scripture, God never, he's a good parent, he never just says don't. He says, instead, do. Don't stare at the trouble. Don't focus on what's wrong. Don't get overwhelmed at the wind and the waves. Look to me. And so the book of Hebrews takes our eyes off of uh, an old way of life, an old system, and puts our eyes on Christ. In fact, it highlights it in a way that says Christ is not only superior, he is the reason all of these other things have been in place. He is the answer and the fulfillment. He is our future and our hope. It's Jesus. He is here, and you can walk with him. In fact, the expectation of the book is 
By the end, you will be stirred so much, you'll stir somebody else and take them along with you. Uh, Another question that quite often comes up when we look at the book of Hebrews, um, everybody wants to know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, In fact, uh, if you listen to theologians, they think even God is wondering who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, I think that the Lord knows. I don't think that we can uh, say definitively uh, who it is that wrote it, but I would say this. We have a good friend that's attended here and preached, Dr. David Allen. He actually wrote a book. Uh, that's called The Lucan Authorship of Hebrews, where I think he makes the very best case for all of the wording and all of those things uh, that uh, Luke is, if we just restrict it to the authors of uh, Scripture and pick one of those guys, Luke is the best candidate for the author of the book of of, uh, Hebrews. Not just Luke, but Luke, writing in AD 67, around the time that the Apostle Paul is martyred, Uh, He's writing to a group of ex-priests, former priests, who are coming to Christ, but now that the leader of their movement in their mind, the one who best understood what they used to focus on and how Christ fulfills that, now that he is dead, they're concerned. And I think that uh, Luke is writing in this book to that group of people, and there's evidences all throughout. Uh, We don't have time this morning to unpack that because I'm almost out of time as it is. Uh, but I do have a little note here with uh, six of his points outlined on the Lucan authorship of Hebrews. It's right here on the stage if anybody cares. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to have us do. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to go to the end because the point of the book that he unfolds, he wraps up and lands here. And we need to make sure we see his intention all the way through. Just like in the book of John, he gives you... Uh, why he wrote that book uh, at the very end of it in the same way the book of Hebrews unpacks it. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Let's stand and read this, and we're going to make three quick observations in our introduction. God, speaking through this author, says this. Now, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that a high calling? You may be seated. I would like you to see just um, in this author's summary right here, I would like you to see three things that we need to talk about um, as we're setting up the book of Hebrews. Three things that Hebrews intends to give to you so that you will walk faithfully in Christ and with others. And the first thing that I want to highlight is that in the book of Hebrews, um, these are three truths Three truths. First one, in Jesus, the real replaces the copy. In Jesus, the real replaces the copy. Uh, If you go to the beginning of the book, and I'm just going to encourage you during the course of this time, in your own quiet time, I want you to read the book of Hebrews. I want you to start at the very beginning of it and walk your way through it. I want you to let it bother you a little bit as you begin to see 
the uh, arguments that he makes, uh, the warnings that he gives, uh, the language that he is using, uh, it is going to make your brain hurt, all right? But it's also going to bless you if you see the point. Jesus is the real And in the book of Hebrews, he replaces the copy. Hebrews draws from Old Testament scripture. There's over 55 times that it quotes it directly. There are many allusions. Every single chapter is alluding to that Old Testament story. Uh, In just chapter one, there are 10 direct quotes from the Old Testament. And here is the key. The assumption is you will have read that context and you understand what he is talking about. I believe as you read through chapter one that you should be reading these scriptures and as you read the context and you see that it's pointing about to Christ, you should be shocked. You should be reading these Old Testament passages and saying, how did I not see that? Or wow, it is sitting right there. And he unpacks each of those and shows us that Jesus is not only the fulfillment, but it's superior to anything else, any other understanding that we could have. It draws on Old Testament scripture and puts Jesus at the centerpiece from the beginning. He says the natural conclusion is that you would see Christ as you read these passages. But also, Hebrews draws from the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you don't uh, run into something from the Old Testament sacrificial system in your reading of the book of Hebrews, you're not reading Hebrews. It talks about a high priest. It talks about sacrifices. It talks about washings and, and uh, bloodletting and the bowl that goes in front. It talks about the tabernacle. It talks about um, high days of atonement. It talks about all of these things. And you might say, well, man, that's just not relevant to me. But it is relevant if you want to understand how that copy was causing us to interact with the Lord and how Jesus now fulfills it all. But Hebrews also draws from the Old Testament storyline. Starting in the book of Exodus and going to Deuteronomy 32, there are multiple statements. In fact, I would say that the five warnings that we get in the book of Hebrews all draw themselves from the storyline. If you don't understand the storyline of them getting saved out of uh, slavery in Egypt right to the time that they are at the door of the promised land for the second time, Having rejected it once, now the children are there. If you don't understand that storyline, you're going to miss some key elements in those warnings. He's warning this group of people who I believe are priests who would have just spent all of their time in the first five books of the Old Testament. These storylines would have jumped off the page to them. But the reason it's written down for you and I is we also will fall into some of these flagrant areas, misconceptions will allow our faith to drift. In fact, the book of Hebrews assumes that you have read the scriptures and you have wondered. One place for me that has always been just as, uh, that, has, that I lean into every single time that I see a statement of the old in the new um, is the moment that the tabernacle is being built. In fact, uh, just write this down in your own notes, Exodus 36, verses 8 through 19. We see something happen. Um, here is the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it actually talks about the coverings that go over the tabernacle. And most of the time, we just, as soon as we start reading, you know, and Hamilton made uh, 450 golden rings and he tied the thing down. We just go into discovery channel mode, right? 
If the guy had an English accent, it would be easier to listen to. But other than that, we're not paying attention to the details. Here you have these four different layers that were over the tabernacle. Now remember all of their sins as the high priest was going in here. This is the place of atonement. This is the place of covering over. And these coverings are a picture in that first layer, that fine linen of blue and then etched on the inside with this gold stitching are pictures of heaven. It's a picture of perfect relationship. It's a picture of Edenic connection. It's a picture where you're coming into a holy place and being with God. But what covered that relationship in Eden? The next layer is goat hair, black. What stops the relationship with God in Eden? What stops the relationship with God in our own life? Sin. Here is this goat's hair that covers that over. Well, how do you fix the sin problem in our life? The next layer, read it in that section, is rams will dyed red. Here's a picture of sin covering that. And the final one, Now, if you read our uh, modern versions, because there's so much debate over what this word possibly means, it's it's a word that is lost to us. We don't know what the original Hebrew meaning is, but the roots of it are very interesting. Uh, Some have said badger skins, some have said porpoise skins. Um, They're trying to find something that would be near the Mediterranean that would actually be relevant. Uh, Some people just say fine leather that's a covering. Uh, In every single one of those, it wouldn't be something to look at. Uh, It's not something that's going to make you drawn to the tabernacle. Is there anybody we know in history who didn't have any stately form that we would look at him? And yet, like a badger, like a porpoise, the root of that word, one theologian pointed out, uh, the roots of that word have the idea of something that goes into the ground and comes out again. Here you have this final stage after the blood is this picture when you see the tabernacle for a distance covered by something that has gone in and come out again. They're carrying around in the wilderness the wordless book. And Jesus, the real, replaces the copy. Now, you should read that. But we should look at the Old Testament with new eyes. We should go back there and begin to wonder, how does Christ fulfill this? What is it? We're not going to have all the answers. We should take the answers only that are given to us in Scripture. But the rest of the time, you should see and wonder, and it should open up in your heart a desire. Lord, how will this be fulfilled? Christ fulfills it. But a second thing that I'd have you notice as we go into the book of Hebrews, anticipate these answers. We must let Jesus recalibrate our compass. That's the point in the book of Hebrews. It's not just to be intrigued. Hey, aren't these some neat little pictures and look how Jesus fulfills it. He actually wants to do something in your life that will change the direction and trajectory of your life. The warnings all the way through the book of Hebrews highlight our propensity to drift. In fact, the very first warning in chapter 2 talks about Drifting. Don't drift. We, by nature, drift. There's, uh, uh, when you talk about being out on the ocean, there are stories of ghost ships. Uh, and a famous ghost ship most recently uh, that has landed, finally, after almost a two-year journey, uh, is the Alta. It had taken off from Greece. Uh, it had recently changed hands. Uh, from a Tanzanian uh, ownership to somebody they're not sure who. Uh, Great big uh, cargo carrier, um, but ultimately, as they get partway through the ocean, they go out of the Mediterranean from Greece. They're headed to uh, the Dominican Republic with a load of goods. Only 10 people on this massive ship. 
And partway through, they end up encountering trouble. The Coast Guard was able to rescue people, and they said, we'll come back for the ship, and they lost it. That was 2018, right? Then, you know, in addition to all the other things that we abandoned in 2019, this ship is one of them. 2020, it shows up in Ireland, beached on the edge of one of their pristine uh, beaches. It's on the shore. Two years lost at sea. They said, man, the ocean is vast. There's all kinds of things. But without somebody at the rudder, ships don't drift safely home. Here's one of the things that gets highlighted in the book of Hebrews, and it should be highlighted every time that we read scripture. We have a propensity to unmoor ourselves from strong connections, to take off without the captain at the helm, and think we're going to somehow, oh, it'll all work out, and just serendipitously, we're going to drift into safe harbor someday, feeling settled and steady, without the captain at the helm. The book of Hebrews reminds you, the reason that the real needs to replace the copy is you need a captain of your soul, and it shouldn't be you. Throw away that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot, Right? You have a terrible pilot, if that's the case. (laughs) Jesus is the pilot or your ship's going to wreck. And that's what the book of Hebrews highlights. But there's a third thing, and we uh, will wrap up. Faithfulness is revealed in community. You see, he starts at the very beginning, and he highlights uh, the fact that the real has replaced the copy. He goes into the fact that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You will see that as we move into uh, chapter 11 on faith and chapter 12. But he, in chapters 10 and 13, highlights the need for community. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it should so stir you that the people next to you begin to matter. You want them to be as stirred and impacted and as healthy as you are when you're in Christ. It should change you. We are called to fellowship. Hebrews 10, and, and we'll take time to, to preach that when it happens, but it's one that has come up many times. Do not forsake the gathering together of believers, right? As is the habit of some. But when you get together, it actually says, consider how you would stir one another to love and good deeds. Now, Matt McCollin shared with me an illustration that he got from a a wonderful individual in most excellent way. I don't know if the camera can catch this, but uh, it's a really profound uh, illustration. I asked him if I could have permission to share it with all of you. Um. If you take a, a picture of, of this, uh, th- this whole jar would be the world. You're inside the world. Uh, all of these little beans that are right here are all the worries and concerns that you could have. You're worried about debt. You're worried about your kids. You're worried about schools. You're worried about politics. You're worried about our nation. You're worried about vacation. Uh, you're worried about whether or not the buffet is going to have shrimp. <laughs> All of your little worries are sitting right here, and you're the nut. Just let that sit. Over the last few years, in in a very profound way, we've actually seen that instead of being on top of these things and closer to the Lord, those weights, the, the concerns, the worries have buried us. And what is our nature? Our nature is to 
try to calm everything down. We, we have all of these things where we, we step away. We don't want anything to shake us, right? We're overwhelmed. We do not want to be shaken. We numb out. We use drugs and alcohol. We start uh, watching TV. We try to run by vacation. We try to eat our way out of it. We do all of these things to settle, stop, and get away from what it is. We do not want to be shaken. But the book of Hebrews highlights something that is important. We don't want to be bothered by people, but you want to know what you need in this season? You need connection and relationship and to be bothered by people. Just look at somebody random right now and just say, I'm blessed that you bother me. Can you do that? That's it. And what's happening right now is just a little bit of shaking. That's uncomfortable. Do you want to know what happens as we let God shake us through those relationships and through his word? As that shaking continues to happen, all of a sudden, this has to work. Look at the nut. All that shaking happens, and here it is right back up at the top. Of all those things, you're closer to the Lord. And God uses that shaking and the problems and the connections, fellowship and the word of God. We don't like reading stuff in the word that forces us to change. We don't like being around people that force us not to be comfortable. We don't like anything that shakes us, but we need it. And the book of Hebrews highlights that thing. Here's what we're going to learn, folks, as we go through this season. We're going to learn that Jesus is the real. We're gonna learn that keeping our eyes focused on him is what matters. And we're gonna learn that we ought to take somebody with us. Amen? Let's pray and we'll go. Father, uh, we're so thankful for your word and we're thankful for the way that it puts Christ on display. We are thankful that you have, right now in this season, allowed us to see that Jesus is the real. Uh, We don't any longer have a a mediator, any need for somebody in between us and you. Jesus, God himself is our mediator. He is the one that takes on all of those things. He has answered our sin. Once for all, we are forgiven and set free. There's nothing left to do. Christ has done it. Father, help us to fix our eyes on him, to live differently because of it, and to take somebody with us on that journey. Help us to delight in the truths that we unpack as we go through this book and this season, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.